Hey guys, welcome back to the Courier Weekly. I'm Danny Giacopelli, Courier's Editorial Director. What do you value, what do you want to pay for, and how do you distinguish yourself from others? According to brand strategist and Courier contributor Anna Angelic, all of this has a huge impact on the business model and growth of brands, and it's part of what she calls the modern aspiration economy. In the not-too-distant past, people collected commodities, Instagram followers, and airline miles. But now, in the modern aspiration economy, Anna says, consumers collect knowledge, taste, communities, and influence. All of this has changed the fundamental way businesses operate, but the dynamics behind the scenes aren't so clearly understood. This week on the show, I'm with Anna for a special one-on-one to talk about her forthcoming book on the subject, The Business of Aspiration, out in October, plus tips for how brands can survive the tough road ahead. I think it was the series of moments in the past probably five years where I sort of figured that in my day-to-day job, I was working as a chief brand officer at the global fashion company and then I was also consulting at a large jewelry company and then I was CMO at another luxury company. And even before that, when I was working with fashion luxury lifestyle brands on the agency side as a global strategy, I've noticed shifts, not only in consumer behavior on just like granular level, like what media they use, how they spend their time, but also how their values are changing and how what they worth paying for is changing and how do they make decisions where to invest their time and money. And that was a real time change that was not so visible as like, oh, here is Instagram. It's a new platform. You should be there. But it was more subtle. And I decided to activate my sociology knowledge because I have a doctorate PhD in sociology. There, I focused on how trends spread in society, how social influence spreads, how taste is formed, and how do we develop taste ourselves and what is taste, what is deemed a good taste, and then finally how people join communities and why. So there are those three levels. One is taste, the other is communities, and third is social influence that I started thinking about and paying attention to. And being on a brand side, that was unbelievably useful in devising the actual tactical solutions and the actual brand strategy in order to appeal to these new behaviors and these new motivations and aspirations. So one of the big, you know, points of your book that you make is that, you know, whereas once companies were obsessed with making things, now it's all about, you know, manufacturing aspiration. So what what do you mean by that? It is on a very practical level. That means, yes, you're selling products. You're in an economic entity at the end of the day, and you sell things, tangible things. You produce them, you distribute them, and then you market them and you sell them. That's not enough. The proverbial uh, widget, I guess, right? You make widgets. (laughs) You make widgets. (laughs) Yes. That's how you put it best. That is not enough to successfully compete. You can invest in making your product more innovative. You can invest in making your product cheaper, which is usually the way to go. You can distribute it to more places and it's still not going to attract the audience that you will attract 
if you invest in offering intangibles. So what does it mean? That means start thinking about offering a service that is on the most basic level. Is there any functionality and utility that goes with your products and not to be completely conceptual that means like do you want to introduce a membership program do you want to introduce a subscription do you want to introduce a way to reward your customers for buying that product by offering them some sort of information or knowledge or some sort of points or a reward or some sort of access that they don't have before so that's that first layer of intangibles but then you can also go further and you can say what kind of community do i want to create around my brand DNA and so far think about the brands like Patagonia that have a community or the more recent brands like Tracksmith or Rafa that have their community or even Glossier that has this massive community so think about those brands that are not about their product at all like yes Tracksmith has amazing design and quality and it has a very clear aesthetic that is rooted in 70s running but more importantly it's rooted in the vibe of long distance running when you look at their sizing their sizing is for real runners they don't go about 32 waist so you can call it like a bad idea, a good idea in this culture of inclusivity, but they know exactly who they are for. And more importantly, they attract those who are true runners. And those true runners don't want to mingle with non-runners. So that is that sort of community and that is that sort of aspiration that you want to belong. And Tracksmith advertising is not like, oh, go buy Tracksmith. No, it's meant for everyone to know about Tracksmith and to know what running in Tracksmith means, that you are a really hardcore runner. So that is sort of an example. And that's the best way to kind of continue this explanation is that I link aspiration. I didn't want to write another book on the modern aspiration. Things have already been written about that. How are sort of what we think is cool or trendy or valuable. That's already been noted how we are moving towards experience economy and wellness and investing in travel versus possessions. That shift is already obvious. What I wanted to mark is the emergence of new brands in that landscape. So when you think about DTC brands that emerged, let's call them modern brands or however you want in the past five years, it emerged as an approach. That approach is how do you improve the quality of life for a very privileged group of people? So Tracksmith is that example, willingly or not willingly, you're designing for people who have enough time and can afford to spend $80 on a pair of shorts and who can afford to run three hours a day. It's not for everyone, it's still creating that social distinction. The second one is that it's a sector. It's a specific sector that's vertically integrated. So a lot of what courier audience is basically brands that own their entire everything, supply, production, distribution, their own, and then their own stores, and they do their own marketing. They're not owned by big companies. They don't outsource their distribution. They, you know exactly where things are produced. So these are vertically integrated. They're very founder-led and they're often externally funded or self-funded, if you will. They're more smaller scale. So that's entire new economic sector. And finally, we are talking about the business model. 
So that is where things become the most interesting, at least for me. And there are certain rules, for example, create fans before customers. That's what I just described with the tracksmith, like awareness becomes before accessibility. So you are aware of things, you may not be able to afford them, but you know what they mean. It's the similar with old school luxury. Yeah, I was going to ask if this approach that you're describing is, does it sit more as a marketing branding function or is it a core business model? Like, you know, Rafa, you brought up, is it just, yeah, we make really interesting, you know, gear for people who love cycling, but we're going to, you know, splash it with like millions and millions of dollars of branding and cool Instagram stuff and like make you feel like you're part of a community. But actually the business model itself is quite the same. It's not just marketing. It can't be just marketing. It's a business model, and I'll explain why. Because in this model, you make brand part of your balance sheet. And that is very different than before. Usually, when we see with, with a lot of startups, they're obsessed with the product. We have the best product. It's made in Italy. It's like, blah. you know, we need a logo. We need, you know, the color palette. And that's not branding, for one. And that's not business either. That's distribution of your product. And that becomes a problem once someone else comes and offers very similar product. Then you again, you're in the same boat as traditional companies because then you have to change distribution or change price or offer like some tweaks like to make your product different. But if you make a brand part of your balance sheet, and what does that mean? That means you spend money on the brand, but then brand brings you money as well that we go back to saying, hey, if we have events in our stores or we have a community or we have content, how do we monetize that? Then you start thinking about not marketing actions that are just cost or overhead. Then you start thinking about that. How do those bring money in? And then you have your KPIs that are business and brand at the same time. So your content production, your community growth and management, your events or whatever else that is becomes part of your business plan. Super interesting. And you reckon that is a quite a new phenomenon. And you know, a brand in the mid 1980s, mid 1990s would never have been thinking about that. Branding for them was just, you know, their logo, their colors, their, you know, their visuals, essentially. You don't need to go to 1990s. It's now. It's like now. Look around. Like, look at the, all those brands that even the new brands, the old brands, they all treat branding and something that, that you sort of, it's an afterthought. And even if they don't think it is afterthought, they, they treat it as PR. I mean, like, walk in a subway in New York before the pandemic, and all those ads look the same because the same agency has done it or the same three agencies have done it. And they follow the same play book but having like a tone of voice that's quirky and fun that's not what the brand is i'm talking about the strategic growth here so that means if you have a very clear brand dna and a point of view and you say what the relationship with the world i want to have then what when you grow you think do i want to grow through brand extensions and what does that mean or do i want to grow through line extensions product line extensions and what does that mean or do i want to have sub brands when I grow because I can't extend the brand to, to reach all these people and still keep the same values. So maybe it makes more sense to have a sub brand. These are all strategic decisions. And unless you know as a brand what your architecture is, what your positioning is, what your identity is, you can't make those decisions. As an example, say, you know, I'm a direct to consumer houseplant brand. So in order to grow, I can, you know, either 
set up a, a physical shop. I can offer, you know, plant care, online courses. I can do all of those things. Is that just an extension of my product line or is that a different path that you're describing? That is the entire offering. So you say, hey, I have a plant line. So I am all about succulents or I'm all about, I don't know, like uh, field flowers. And then I say, hey, but you know what? I noticed that people are gardening so much more. So I'm going to go and start offering garden plants. And then I'm going to, but what I'm offering, my value proposition needs to be the same as my core one. So it's recognizable as the part of the same brand. So that is how I grow. I grow through product extension and through audience extension with the same promise that I already have. And, or if you are, say, a coffee shop or you're a coffee provider. You say, I'm not only going to provide these coffee beans, I'm going to educate people about the difference between these coffee beans. So I'm going to become a go-to resource for coffee beans all around. And no one can really replicate your knowledge, your relationship with your providers, the community between producers, suppliers, everyone who touches your product that you have. That way you have a much higher competitive barrier. Is this phenomenon that you're describing, is this something that is limited to, as you mentioned, the quite small direct-to-consumer market, which is, you know, if you stop the average person on the street, they'll have no idea what Warby Parker is, even though that's a really old example, right? I mean, most people are not part of this, you know, high-earning millennial kind of like little clique. This is like a, a niche thing. Would you agree with that? I think there are some examples of bigger brands like Patagonia, again, is an example. Nike is an example of a big brand, Uniqlo, Ikea. I mean, those are the big brands. They have a very clear, Ikea has unbelievably clear culture, set of values. It's deeply rooted in the Swedish set of values. We are humble, we are like non-fuss, we are like, you know, we are quirky or however. Even the Ikea name, it's about the founder, his farm and the village the farm was in. So it's very rooted in a provenance. So that's why they can do all the fun things they're doing because they're always unmistakably Ikea. So I don't think this is uh, limited to DTC, but it's rare. You have like, you know, maybe 10 examples in the world, if that, of big companies that manage to like actively figure out how they're going to use their brand for growth. And how do you think, you know, the last four or five months have impacted all of this? Has COVID, Black Lives Matter, you know, it's thrown everything for a tailspin, everything's upside down right now. Has that impacting the aspiration economy as you wrote it in your book, which I imagine you kind of, you've written probably a lot of this before COVID or maybe whilst COVID was going on. I wrote a lot about like February and March. So it was done on April 1st. And then I went back and I added the chapter the entire <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, aspirational coronavirus killed aspirational economy. What now, you know? And basically, we were seeing the sort of kernels of the new aspirations emerging during COVID. And those are, we all of a sudden became very aware of our own fragility of our own humanity or our own needs to depend on each other and also of our needs to bend together 
in order to survive. So all of a sudden, those are the things we haven't thought about that before. All we talked about before was like, oh, I'm going to meditate five hours a day in order to self-actualize and I'm going to buy organic and I'm going to, you know, buy from the brands that stand for something. And now that's like dialed up on like hundred because now you're like, oh, what does this brand stand for? What did they do during this pandemic? Did they give me like those earnest, like violin music ads? Or did they actually do something for the immediate community? Did they shift their operation to maybe create face masks or hand sanitizer? Or did they really donate an unbelievable amount of money for certain things? Or did they make their service available to a larger number of people. So I think that what our expectations from brands are now different and uh, we have way less tolerance for bullshit. I think that's one thing that sort of like separates winners and losers is our radar for bullshit. Like before we were like, oh, whatever, you know, but now we're like, no, this is so wrong. Like, you know, we are ready to, to cancel a lot of brands, which is bad and good. Good thing about about that is that we hold everyone who has a commercial role to a higher standard. The bad thing is that as we've seen, cancel culture can be and is weaponized. Yeah. And as you mentioned, yeah, everything is just quite fragile. What about going forward? If I'm a brand right now listening to this, given all of the mayhem and given the tailspin that COVID has thrown, even most of, you know, a lot of what you've written in the book, what would you suggest to a brand, you know, a brand owner listening to this? How could they approach their own business model, look at it, freshen it up and prepare it for the next coming tumultuous years? I believe first and foremost, I think that this economy before, our economy, our society, our lives were driven by this pressure of efficiency. So we are all about optimization, maximization. We want to like maximize our productivity, maximize our leisure time, maximize our lifestyle. Everything is like, how do I live a more efficient life? And companies operated according to the same efficiency principles. So what does that mean in practice? You don't want to have a lot of money sitting on your, you know, balance sheet. You don't want to have like a lot of kind of like slack and buffer. Everything is sort of the capacity is at 100 and that has proven to be unbelievably fragile. So my advice to business owners is to allow for slack, to allow for sort of less efficiency, because if you have less efficiency, then you have more room to sort of be nimble and to pivot and to survive at the end of the day, to have less expectations and to adjust for unpredictable situations. So I think that is a great, I think, advice not to chase efficiency, but to be a little bit de-efficient. What do you mean in practice? Could you put that in practice? When you say efficient, you mean, you know, I have three people on staff and that's exactly the amount of people that I need to get the job done. But, you know, if somebody dropped dead, then I'd really be screwed. Is that what you mean by efficient? But you're saying bake in more people, have like six people instead of three people. Okay, that's one way to do that. The other is to not hire really specialized people, to hire more of generalist people. So if someone drops dead, God forbid, those other two know exactly what is happening already. 
and not to have this super efficient process when you hand over what you do, but everyone knows what everyone else is doing. So you have to have, and that's inefficient at the end of a day when you think about it, because like if everyone is sitting together and know whatever, that, that creates a lot of noise, but it's also good but whenever someone is sick or can't come, you know already what they're doing, what their job is, and you can jump in. Don't hire a specialist. Ask the question, is this person motivated? Can this person help this other person do their job better? So we are all working towards the same North Star and towards the same vision. Don't worry how are they going to do that. Are they a copywriter, art director or something? Like, forget about that. If they can help another person on your team do the job better and add value to the company overall, just hire them. That is the best example. And that's because nobody knows what's going to come next. You know, a comic could fall out of the sky and, and it's it's the generalist who would be best at adapting to those kind of crazy situations, right? It's just because you don't know if all of a sudden, like the nuclear, I mean, not nuclear war. Yeah, we, we're, we're having all of these like dramatic scenarios of people dropping dead and nuclear bombs. But like, you're basically saying, you know, it's a tough road ahead and that you can't predict what's going to happen. And if you have somebody who only knows how to do X, you know, they're not going to be well adapted to bouncing back. Exactly. I was talking to people here from small businesses. There was a brewery, for example, in Boston. So all of a sudden they had to close, shut the brewery down. All right. So they pivoted to pickup and delivery, but they didn't have to fire a lot of people or furlough a lot of people on their team because they didn't have specialists. And also they didn't have holes in their team because everyone was able to jump in and do what needed to be done. So if someone was a barista, all of a sudden they pivoted to doing something else but because this brewery always operated holistically and not in specialized way they did not suffer that much as if you had someone who just did one job what imagine if that person can't come to work the entire operation stops because of that one person so that is the point yeah. It reminds me of an interview I did with Amy Errett, uh, the founder of Madison Reed, the hair coloring company, who did really well during COVID, obviously, because a lot of people were dyeing their hair at home, but also because she managed to take a lot of her staff from the actual brick and mortar salons and move them to customer service roles. And she kind of, you know, it was a quick transition. Right. I know that other like Kios has been doing that. Like some beauty companies have already been doing that. They were able to save some jobs by, by shifting them. So I think that the lack of specialization is one example. And then that holistic approach is another if you are a small business. And then is also like another thing is how do you bake social good with your economic good that is advice for small business owners what kind of currency you can invent so there is sort of an exchange and you're still creating value for a community and i'll give an example a bookstore here in florida they're african-american owner and she was motivated to put forward the narratives of african-american authors that are not about struggle or those racial stereotypes so she had like a physical store and when this happened she quickly pivoted online and started giving a sort of storytelling like it was a video it was audio but she also created bring me your book report from school and I'll give you a free book or a free loan. So she created like connection with the community and to inspire kids to do well in school by giving them free access. So that was a loan, but it was also doing 
good. That was a different sort of currency. It was that trust currency. Bring me your school report. I'll give you a book and you'll return it to me. So you see like that is a, how do you create connections with a community? Any other practical tips you'd give to a, a brand owner, a company owner listening right now? You're a brand strategy expert. You dip your toes into tons of different things and you talk to tons of different people every day. Run your business knowing that tomorrow you may have to pivot. That is going back to that inefficiency. And I'll give an example. I spoke with a person who has this milk dairy farm or something, and they had to pivot to delivery that they didn't use for 30 years, which is door to door. They had to do that very quickly because and but because they treat their employees as a family family owned business everyone was able to reshuffle become a driver and all of a sudden move both the packaging and the operational side again that is that that holistic approach that it's like oh it doesn't mean if you're in an accounting quickly reshift our delivery because we are not getting orders from stores anymore but people still need milk so how are we going to solve the problem so i think that is a good practice to solve problems saying, if my distribution disappears, what am I going to do? If the stores shut down, what am I going to do? If my sales go down 50%, what am I going to do? The scenario planning has become more important than ever. So I would encourage small business owners to really say, if I had to furlough 10% of my team, what happens? 20% what happens, 50% what happens. And no one has been thinking like that. Everyone's been thinking in terms of growth, growth, growth. Now, growth means different things. And that's it this week. Make sure to check out our latest print edition, The Design Issue, all about how to make it work as a creative entrepreneur. And check out our new Fresh Fund, a grant scheme for black business founders to start or supercharge a company. You can find out details of both on our site, couriermedia.co. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Curry Weekly is back again next week. We'll see you then.